a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And today we have two Wavemakers in the studio with us, Carla Jimenez. The communications office. But Carla... Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Janet and Tom, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay area. I'm Tom. And I'm Janet. Today's Wavemaker is Fred Hearns, Curator of Black History at the Tampa Bay History Center. Welcome to Wavemakers, Fred. Thank you, Tom. I'm really happy to be here. Fred has led more than 300 tours of historic Tampa neighborhoods with a particular focus on unearthing Tampa's forgotten, buried, or neglected black history. And he is working on the planned expansion of the History Center, which will include an expanded black history collection. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Fred, I've known you a long time. uh, Back when I was a young city hall reporter for the Tampa Times, which was by the way, for all of you young folks, an afternoon newspaper that folded in 1982. Um, and you were working in uh, the city of Tampa's Equal Opportunity Office. I didn't know that you were a student of history. How did you get interested in history? How did you become a historian? Well, Tom, believe it or not, when you and I met, I really wasn't that much of a student of history. That kind of developed over the years, I guess starting in the 90s. And then... Uh, Shortly before I retired from the city of Tampa in 2007, I really became serious about learning as much about the history of the city of Tampa as I could, especially the history of African-Americans in Tampa. So this was just maybe within the last 20, 25 years that I really became a serious student of history. You've really reinvented yourself. I actually have. And, you know, I didn't set out to do that. It was not an intentional decision that I made. It just sort of happened. And, you know, I consider it now like my mission, like my ministry. And I think it really came from God. I mean, that's really where the inspiration came. And that's what keeps driving me every day. Spreading the gospel of uh, history and truth. That's right. Well, let's talk about some of that history. Um, So much of Tampa's um, black history has been uh, buried, neglected, forgotten, uh, so let's talk about some of those historical figures that people should know about. There are certain names that people might be uh, familiar with, but not know why that name is attached to something, like uh, Fortune Taylor. Tell us about Fortune Taylor. Well, Fortune Taylor, who was married to Benjamin Taylor, uh, was one of those people who uh, was born into slavery Uh, probably came to Tampa as a result of her owners coming here, which is how many black people arrived here uh, during the antebellum period. And, of course, it was against the law uh, and against local custom for blacks to to marry. 
So there was no way she could have married during slavery. But the some 100 uh, black people who lived in Tampa and uh, during the Civil War were liberated on May 5th, 1864. Remember that year, 1864. Mm-hmm. Not 1865. Which Not 1865, a whole year before the Civil War ended on a national level. It ended in Tampa when the Union Army arrived. Uh, there was not much of a fight put up by the Confederates who were here. Uh, what was left of a, a Confederate Army, I guess you might say, was away on a cattle drive. So they weren't even in town when the Union Army arrived, May 5th, 1864, as well as the Union Navy sailed up uh, old McKay Bay mm-hmm. into Hillsborough Bay and captured Fort Brook. You know, there was an actual military fort here, Fort Brook. We now have a parking garage named for Fort Brook, which is approximately where much of the fort was located. That area where the Tampa Convention Center is, that's where the officers' headquarters were. So it was down in the Channel Side area as we know it today. So when the fort was captured, that's when uh, liberation came to some 100 blacks here in the Tampa Bay area. And Fortune and Benjamin Taylor would have been two of those blacks. And just to make it clear, there were not very many people living in Hillsborough County at all no. at the time. And, of course, Hillsborough County was much bigger. Uh, the, the boundary stretched, uh, included Pinellas County. It went right. much farther north. It went farther south. And how many people lived in Hillsborough County say, around the time of the Civil War? Less than a 1,000 and so in the entire county. And in you, the and entire you county. Less than a 1,000. We have how many now? Three million? Well, in the Bay area. But it would have been, Janet, you're right. I mean, because that was Hillsborough County. Hillsborough County is about a million right now? Or yeah, about close a million. To that? Uh-huh, and Pinellas is about a million. And right. So, yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? And so there were less than a 1,000 people in, in huge Hillsborough County at the time. And so there were about 100 enslaved blacks who were living here at that time. And Fortune Taylor was probably She was one of those, and Benjamin Taylor was. Fortune uh, and Benjamin married as soon as they could. I mean, like maybe a year after they were liberated, when it was actually legal for blacks to marry. Uh, they got married in, in Florida. In fact, they were the second uh, African Americans in Hillsborough County. Mm-hmm history mm-hmm. to be legally married. I, I, found exactly. their, I found their marriage license in an old uh, day book uh, at the clerk's office. And one of the things that the black people did when they got the liberation, in addition to marrying, if they had mates uh, who they maybe had children with, was to reunite their families. So they went looking for brothers, sisters, parents, children, you know, who, many of whom had been sold away. Uh, because they had no say over where their uh, family members lived or went or who their owners were. So once liberation came, they reunited their families as as best they could. They got married, and they also sought to own land. And that's what Benjamin and Fortune were able to do also. They bought a lot of land, didn't they? At, At least perhaps back then it wasn't very valuable land, but it's some pretty valuable land today. Explain to the listeners what they owned. They owned some 33 acres of land in downtown Tampa, much of it including, and and most folk know where the Strass Center is, Mm -hmm. our performing arts center. If you can imagine that property being owned by a black couple in the 1870s. And if you can also imagine, uh, I'd say from Kennedy Boulevard, from where the bridge uh, 
goes over to Ashley, all the way down Ashley, uh, to uh, just about before you get to Cass Street. Most of that area uh, was owned by black people. Cyrus Charles, who served on the county commission, and by the way, he was not elected. He was appointed. The blacks who served in, in Tampa during Reconstruction were appointed, most of them by the governor. Uh, they were not elected to these positions. Nevertheless, they served on city council, county commission. They served in the state legislature uh, for a while. I mean, that only lasted for about 10 or 12 years during Reconstruction. But during that time where Curtis Sixon Park is located, Cyrus Charles, a black man, owned most of that land. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wave Makers on WMNF in Tampa. Um, and our guest is uh, Fred Hearns, who is the curator of black history at the Tampa Bay History Center. Um, normally on this show, we do take calls and emails, but we're not doing that today. This phone, uh, this, this conversation is pre-recorded, and we're really glad to have Fred here to talk to us a little bit about the black history of, of Hillsborough County and the Tampa Bay region? Or is it focused mostly at the, the museum you're on, Tampa Bay, Tampa, Hillsborough right. County? Yeah. Well, Tampa Bay History Center is, is a, a regional history center. So it's because it's located in Tampa. Yes, of course, a lot of the history does include Tampa history. But as you know, Tampa Bay is more than Hillsborough County. So uh, in fact, we have property up in Hernando County that we manage. We'll talk about that maybe a little no. later today. But let me get back to Fortune because they, are in thir- they own 33 acres of land. Uh, on much of this land, they planted fruit trees, which a lot of people did in mm-hmm. Florida and still do, you know, today uh, if they have uh, many acres. Fortune and Benjamin Taylor were two of about a dozen black people who own substantial amounts of property of acreage in Hillsborough County. And much of downtown Tampa in the 1870s was owned by African-Americans, Tom. Is that right? And, and how did, what happened to her, to their property? I know eventually uh, she uh, survived him. He died and, and, and she, was, she stayed for many years she, and she lived for many years after his death. Right. Uh, and how did she lose her property? Well, did she sell it off? Well, let me go back a few years before then, because most of this property prior to uh, the end of slavery was owned by people who supported the Confederacy hmm. here in Tampa. You know, Florida was the third state behind South Carolina and Mississippi to succeed from the Union at the beginning of the Civil War hmm. in 1861. So it was heavily Confederate. Florida often made bad choices. They they were, yeah. they, they also sided. <laughs> yeah, they also sided with uh, with England uh, during yeah. the Revolutionary War. So that was two bad decisions that yeah. they made there. But so especially if you were a leader of the Confederacy during that time, uh, at the end of the the war, these Confederates lost their property to the federal government. I mean, you know, these people fought against the government of the United States of America. Therefore, their property was seized by the federal government. Uh, you probably heard the war, the, the North did win the Civil War, so they had the right to do that. They took that property and they deeded much of that property over to African Americans. Mm. I never knew that. Imagine so, that. So is that, so is that how... Uh, so that's how they got most of that property, was homesteaded to these black folk. They didn't mm. have the money to buy it. Right. 
it was and and to be honest with you, a lot of the property was given to the whites uh early on uh when we were trying to lure white settlers into the state of Florida. Federal government actually gave 160 acres to many white families who would agree to come to Florida. Most of these people had never lived here before because of the Seminoles and because of, you know, some other opposition that they might have had. So this was a way for the federal government to populate the state with white settlers. But then when the Civil War started, many of these white settlers sided with the Confederacy. Therefore, they lost their land. And so many of them were determined one way or the other, they were going to get that land back. And so that's why Fortune and Benjamin and many other African-Americans wound up losing their property, either through eminent domain or trickery or treachery or so some it, other means. So the land was taken from them. Mm-hmm. There, were people who, uh, there were white people who had the land and what, they were Confederate sympathizers. Right. When the North won the war, they took right. the land from them and gave it to the Black families. Much of it, yes. And Not so, all of it, but much of it. And then they all had to try to live together. and. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. But you can imagine the resentment Absolutely. toward Fortune Taylor and Benjamin. Now, Benjamin died maybe three years after they were married. So Fortune was the one who carried on the homestead mm-hmm. after his death. You can imagine the resentment of those people who had owned that land before the war, and now this land is owned by black people mm-hmm. who were enslaved to them. Yes. And so by 1900, almost all of that land had changed hands and was back in the hands of white property owners. But there is a street named after Fortune Taylor. Today. Today. Yeah, there is Today a street. There is a street named after her. Do you know how that happened? Yeah. Did, Fortune, did she name it after herself, or did the city actually name it after her? Well, let me tell you what, what happened then, because there was a time when blacks and whites worked together uh, in many areas that seems difficult to work, to work together on now. As it relates to land ownership and, and community development, simply because there's practically no land in downtown Tampa owned by African Americans now. But in the 1890s, Hugh McFarlane, one of the developers of West Tampa, when he decided that he wanted to build cigar factories in West Tampa to mirror the ones in Ybor City that Don mm-hmm. Vicente Martinez Ybor started the ball rolling there in 1885. Yes. But there was no bridge connecting West Tampa to downtown, and they needed that bridge so that the cigar workers could uh, get to work, the ones who lived in Ybor. There were not that many people living in West Tampa in 1890. Eventually, there were. So... Because Fortune Taylor owned the land on the west side, on the east side of the river, where the Strass Performing Arts Center is, Hugh McFarlane and other white businessmen owned the land on the west side. So they formed this partnership. And it was Hugh McFarlane, primarily, I would, I would say, who played a major role in saying, we'll name this bridge for Fortune Taylor, because without her land, this bridge would not exist. They were using barges to get across mm-hmm. the Hillsborough River, okay, until yeah. Fortune Taylor agreed to have that bridge built. On her property. On her property. But thank God there was somebody who said, let's pay tribute to her and name the bridge for her. That yeah. didn't always happen in Tampa, but it did happen at that site. That's how the bridge got her name. But then in the 1960s, when Interstate 4 and 275 and all of the interstate construction started in this area, when the interstate went across the river, for some reason, someone decided on the state level or on the local level 
that they would change the name of the bridge, even though the bridge never moved. So it became the Laurel Street Bridge connecting up to Laurel Street. You know, we have several streets on the west side in West Tampa named for plants or trees or, you know, shrubs. So Laurel, which is a a A plant, a tree, uh, like Walnut and all of the other chestnuts and all the other streets in West Tampa are named. And then suddenly the name of the bridge was changed to Laurel. What, and, was there any public discussion of that or any I'm sure there. Uh, I, I don't think there was any real objection to yeah. it. If there was, it was overruled. And you have to remember, we didn't have a black on city council, a black person, until 1983. Mm. So many decisions had been made prior to that time, and that was Perry Harvey. So there was no black representation downtown to object to something like that. Just to be clear, there were no black elected officials in Hillsborough County until... 1976, 1976. When, Reverend, when Reverend A. Leon Lowry was elected to the school board, mm-hmm. and so, he served several terms. So even during that very brief period of Reconstruction, when uh, the federal government was trying to help African Americans mm-hmm. regain a foothold in society, they still were not able to elect someone who looked like them to office. No, and the rules kept changing. Election laws kept changing. I mean, there were all kinds of obstacles put up. Uh, you've probably heard that before. But let's finish the story of Fortune Taylor because right. it does have a happy ending. That name was removed from the bridge. Right. Uh, but you wrote about this, I think, 20 years ago or something. This, so yeah. this has been, this has been a, a, an issue for you. That's a, a personal issue for you for a long time. Tell us about that. What, how did you, uh, yeah. what did you write about and why did you write it? Well, around 2000, when I became, I became more and more interested in, in city history and the local history, uh, I wanted to do something about the name being restored to that bridge, that it should be the Fortune Taylor Bridge. And I have a personal reason for that. My father, who grew up on Highland Avenue, where Waterworks Park is located, that block, that was a black neighborhood in the 1930s and 40s. He grew up on Highland Avenue, where the park is now. What was that neighborhood called? Do you Hi- know well, it, it was, was Highland uh, Avenue, Highland so people Avenue just said, I live on Highland. I live on mm-hmm. Highland, okay. Yeah, yeah. Highland. Because the, the, the land is high That's there. Okay. Mm. You know, the land slopes down as you go further and further south. Yep. Those of us who've been caught in a rainstorm on, on South Dale Mabry, we know how low the land is there. So, we actually evacuated to that neighborhood during a hurricane. Did you? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You went, like, in, okay, the, you went in the wrong direction. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> but anyway, so high land because the land is high, you know, when you get yeah. there. So anyway, he grew up on Highland Avenue. My mother grew up on Main Street, very close to where Howard W. Blake High School is located now, Main North Boulevard, that area in public housing. My father, when he was courting my mother when they were teenagers, used to walk across the Fortune Street Bridge, very short walk, to my mother's apartment in North Boulevard Homes. Therefore, you have Fred Hearns. Okay. So, so, so that's how my parents yeah. got together. So that bridge, so it had a personal <laughs> meaning to me. Yeah. This is a true story. It's very interesting, yeah. So I said, why can't we restore the name of that bridge? There's so little downtown name for African Americans. I mean, we have the George H. Cone Courthouse. That's wonderful. But what about restoring the name of this bridge to this black woman, Fortune Taylor? That was 20 years ago, and not a lot happened. There were some stories written about it, but Gloria Jean Royster is the one who mm-hmm. I think really helped to 
to get the ball all the way to the finish line uh, about five years ago with her efforts. Yes, she's done a great job. Talk about, I guess she's an amateur historian, but she has really gotten into the story of Fortune mm-hmm. Taylor, and she did bring it to uh, public uh, recognition. And I guess it was under Mayor Bob Buckhorn that they finally got right. changed, right? Right, right, right. And that was one of them. She does tours there now, and so that that was a win. That was a victory for black history. Mm-hmm. And she's awesome, Gloria Jean. She's shout out to Gloria Jean Royster. She's a weight maker. She is. We should have her on the show sometime. I think oh, should. yeah, you should. Absolutely. But around the same uh, time frame in Reconstruction, I guess, there was another interesting uh, uh, black woman, uh, Christina Meacham. And there's now, uh, we've had a wave maker on here who's involved with Meacham Farms, which is an mm-hmm. urban farm mm-hmm. located at uh, the site of uh, old, the old Meacham School, which was named after her. Mm-hmm. But tell us about uh, Christina Meacham and her role in Tampa history. Christina Meacham was an educator by trade. Uh, she was uh, uh, someone who was teaching black children how to read, how to write, how to do arithmetic, helping them get an education at a time when many people felt like blacks didn't really need much of an education. Uh, so she uh, worked at the uh, Harlem Academy School, which was the first black school in Tampa. The Harlem Academy School was founded in 1870. Uh, she taught there. She became principal of the Harlem Academy School. And then later on, she met a man named Robert Meacham, a young man uh, in Tampa, whose father was very well known in Tallahassee uh, all throughout the state of Florida. He was a state legislator at a time when there were very few blacks. And this was, again, during Reconstruction. And he was appointed. Was yeah, he appointed? Yes, yes. Uh, Robert Meacham was. Robert Meacham was appointed to the Florida Senate. But uh, Robert Meacham came to Tampa. I believe he was attending a meeting here. And he was uh, the victim of an auto accident. Uh, serious injuries laid him up. And he his family decided not to move him from Tampa. So his son actually relocated here, Robert Meacham Jr., mm-hmm. to help care for his father. And that's when Robert Meacham Jr. met Christina. I believe her maiden name was Johnson. They got married. So she became Christina Meacham. And the Meacham School uh, opened in 1927 in the area that was called the Scrub, the mm-hmm. old Central Park uh, apartments, which is now Encore, beautiful mm-hmm. development, won all kind of national awards. Uh, With Perry Harvey Ar- Park near there, too. Perry Harvey else Park. we just talked about a little bit earlier. Yeah. yeah, just a couple of blocks away. So that was the area where the Meacham School was located. And so the Housing Authority, the federal government, Hood, did a land swap with the Hillsborough County Public School District. They swapped the land where the old Meacham School was located as part of Encore. And then the Housing Authority gave the school district the land, which is now the Meacham Urban Farm on Scott Street. Fascinating. And they have, a, yeah, and they have a partnership with the school district at the farm, I believe. But they're, right. they never rebuilt the school? Did they tear mm-hmm. down that a historic building? Was there, what happened with that school? The, the, the Meacham School probably could have been designated a historic building, but it never was. So, yes, it was torn down. During the on- construction of Encore? During the construction of Encore, right. Mm. And currently, I don't believe there's a building... Uh, on that block, but there will be one day when the Housing Authority completes building up Encore. But we've been told that when the population uh, requires another middle school in that part of the city, 
that where the farm is, that will be transformed uh, into Meacham Middle School. So right. there will be a Meacham Middle School at some point built on that land. Because we have uh, been talking about building a school, replacing the school that they tore down for a long time. That's been right. probably 20 years. Yeah. The school that was torn down was an early childhood center. Years ago, it had been an elementary school. Mm-hmm. But the new Meacham School will be a middle school. At least that's what we heard from the school district a few years ago. Well, uh, during this time of, uh, say, the 1870s, 1880s, you mentioned that there was some areas where uh, blacks and whites would cooperate, but this was a very racist state, let's face it, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was a lot of resentment among the whites toward the new power and uh, and both economic and political among African Americans, and we saw lynchings here. Florida had the highest rate of lynchings per capita of any uh, state in the country, Uh, and now we're going to have a lynching memorial built. Um, Tell us about Tampa's history involving lynching, if you can. How many people were lynched, if you know, or how how common was it? Well, between, uh, I'd say about 1880 and 1934, there are five documented instances. Uh, I'm sure there were many more than that, because in some cases... Uh, People just were were listed as missing or they ran away and we don't know where they are or what have you. But we know that there are five documented cases, which is five too many. So about uh, two years ago, just before uh, the pandemic uh, reached us, uh, City Councilman Luis Vieira Mm -hmm. came up with with the idea, and he was the one who pushed this idea. That we need a lynching memorial, we need a marker, uh, we need a, a sign to place in a prominent location in Tampa to pay tribute to the victims of lynching, racial lynching, African Americans. We know that there were Italians during the cigar strikes and there were other people who were lynched. Mm-hmm. But primarily, he wanted to put the focus on African Americans who were lynched, uh, who never got due process, and many of them were completely innocent of of committing any crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he called me and we put together a small committee. Uh, State Representative Fentress Driscoll co-chairs mm-hmm. that committee with him. And to make a long story short, we now have not only a marker that's been approved by the city and it will be going up on the Riverwalk, on the Tampa Riverwalk, near the Fortune Taylor Bridge. Oh, that's great. where the marker's going probably sometime later this year. In addition to that, we are part of a national movement. This is just not some isolated incident. The Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, Alabama, Mm -hmm. has two large museums, one outdoor, one indoor. At the indoor museum, uh, which is uh, just spectacular, I mean, if, if I'd encourage folk, if you're going to Montgomery, Alabama, you want to visit the Equal Justice Initiative Museum there. The Legacy Museum is what it's called. It takes up a whole city block. It's right on the Alabama River where the enslaved blacks were brought in. They were housed in a warehouse until they were auctioned, and then they were shipped off all over the South to plantations and Mm -hmm. different locations. There is a vase containing soil that was taken from the Hillsborough River, actually near Lowry Park. 
that is on display in that museum, along with 800 vases Mm -hmm. from 800 different communities all over the country where there were lynchings Mm -hmm. of African Americans. And the interpretations of these lynchings and who did it and why they did it and how these things happen, you learn all of that when you go through that museum. It takes about two days to Mm -hmm. go through that museum and really take in everything that you can witness. So now... Tampa, Hillsborough County, is part of that effort. So we have that soil on display. We also have the names of those five lynching victims. And I apologize, I don't have the other names with me today. But we know that Robert Johnson was the last person lynched in 1934. And there mm-hmm. are these large metal sheets, about the size of the, of the top of a casket, hanging from the ceiling in their outdoor museum. And those five Hillsborough County names are there in that museum in Montgomery. But Tampa's unusual uh, because uh, it wasn't just African Americans who were being lynched, right? There were lynches yeah, involving yeah. Italians, uh, cigar workers, right. uh, union activists, right? Uh, right, uh, right, right. Uh, were there very many uh, other cities that saw that kind of... Uh, I'm not sure because, you know, Tampa had a unique situation with yeah. the cigar workers, cigar mm-hmm. factories. There, uh, other than... You know, Key West, there were not a lot of the cities in the United States where you had that mix during during that time period. Cubans and Italians yes. and Sicilians and all these people working in the same factories side by side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was, I think uh, Gary Marmino has made the point that we had the second largest immigrant uh, population mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. South after New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can we can thank uh, Don Vicente Martinez Ebor for a lot of that. For a lot of that. Ebor, yeah, he, he really... Help to make Tampa a unique place. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF, and our guest is Fred Hearns, who is the curator of Black History at the Tampa Bay History Center. Um, and uh, this is a pre-recorded show. Normally, we do take calls and emails, but we're not doing that today. Um, and really enjoying this conversation with Fred. If you have a Wavemaker, you think we should interview. Please uh, email us at uh, dj at wmnf.org. We'd like to hear from you. Now, moving ahead in history a little bit, uh, during the uh, early uh, part of the 20th century, uh, there was a monument uh, uh, erected uh, in memory of uh, the Confederates, even though, as you pointed out, there were not very many of them here at the time. Uh, So the historical context of the uh, uh, construction of that memorial or that, that statue, I think, is very interesting. Um, and it was uh, literally dedicated uh, to the cause of white supremacy. The, the, the uh, featured speaker of that day was the state attorney, and he dedicated that monument to the cause of white supremacy. Um, do, do you think very many people were aware of that before the controversy uh, arose? I don't think so, Tom. And and let me clarify something. I may have misspoke earlier. There were a lot of Confederates here during the Civil War. But on the day that the Union Army arrived, the Confederate Army, such as it was, was not in town. They were away on a cattle drive. So I didn't mean to imply that there were not a lot of Confederates here. They well, just, what I meant to say was we didn't have very many people living here at all. Yeah, I, yeah, mean, I mean, but there, there were hundreds of them. There were so hundreds was, of them. Yeah. That was considered a lot at that time. It was a Confederate city. Right. Let's face it. Right. Yeah. Listen, when the, when the Civil War ended in 1965, officially. 18, 1865. 1865. Yes. In 1865, when the Civil War ended, 
of course, the South had had to concede that uh, they lost the war reluctantly. And uh, generally, you know, Appomattox Courthouse, you know, uh, USS Grant, Ulysses. I mean, it, all of that happened in 1865. And so what the, the people who still felt that the South uh, had been violated, had been uh, uh, illegally invaded by the North, who believed that uh, the Confederacy was right and that the Union was wrong and all of the action that was taken, someone somewhere decided that, you know what we need to do? Let's put up statues of mm. Robert E. Lee and our Confederate you know, heroes all over the nation, as many as we can. And so one was erected here in Hillsborough County in front of the courthouse. It was erected in 1911, 50 years after the Civil War ended. That was no accident. That was a celebration, the 50-year, what is 50 years, a golden anniversary or, I forget. Mm, I don't know. I know there's silver. Right. That I think sounds it's golden, yep. I think 50 is the, so on the golden anniversary of the end of the Civil War, all over the, all over the country, not just in Hillsborough County, 1911, if you look at the records, there were dozens of these statues erected, and they were normally erected in front of the courthouse or somewhere on, you know, on public ground where it never should have been erected in the first place. And so it stood there for, for all of this time. Now, I mean, 19- it was moved, of course. It was uh, moved when the courthouse yeah. moved. Yeah. It was but, still, yeah. but, you know, Courthouse Square at that time would have been on Franklin Street uh, where the police department is. That was pretty much Courthouse Square. Uh, from the 1830s until, what, 1950, I think, 51, somewhere about that time. Mm-hmm. So when the courthouse moved, the statue moved. And the Daughters of the Confederacy had paid for it to be uh, built and, and right. placed it there in front of the county courthouse. Right. And then I think it was the government that ended up moving it right. uh, to its uh, what was its final uh resting place before it was dismantled and sent to uh, Brandon. <laughs> um, some of us thought it should have been more appropriate to put it at the bottom of the bay, uh, but there are were there was quite a bit of opposition to removing that uh, right. statue. And as a historian, how do you how do you um, answer folks who say, "Well, you're tearing down history"? Well, no, I wasn't torn down. It was just relocated. <laughs> Listen, the courthouse is on public property. It's now the courthouse annex, but still, it's public property. It's government property. It's the Pat Frank Courthouse now. Actually, they have named it after Pat Frank. And uh, where, where you're right. For many, for where she worked for decades. Yes, you're right. You're right. But uh, I, and agreed, I, and I can tell you something. I agreed with she, the decision. To she, ask she, she, would, she would not have wanted her name on a, no. a building with a Confederate monument no. in front of it. Uh, but it's okay. not just you know. I have a response to people who say that, which is that you're not destroying history. You're not honoring people from history. It doesn't mean that you forget the history because you always need to remember history, especially the bad stuff so it doesn't happen again. But you don't need to honor those people, and that's what that statue did. Exactly. And I I saw it, uh, I guess, about a month or so ago. I was driving through Brandon, and it's there, you know, on the... uh, Left side of the street. But you actually can see it. It's, a, yeah. it's in a cemetery, so yeah. it's an appropriate place for it. Yeah, with with other with with other uh, Confederates who are buried there. So. Right. That's appropriate. Yeah. Right. And 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 uh, I always tip my hat to uh, former Commissioner Les Miller. 
mm-hmm. because it was under his leadership that that effort happened. And a lot of the money that went into that, you know, private donations, uh, maybe all of the money. Uh, I know that, uh, and, and I'll never forget, uh, one of the first people to come forward with a big check was Tony Dungy. That's right. And there were several other people here who, you know, wrote checks and said, yes, we need to move it. We're not dumping it in the bay. We're moving mm-hmm. it. We're just moving it into Hillsborough County. It never should have been placed on, on government land, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Certainly not in the front of the courthouse. But to answer your original question, no, I don't think most people really knew the history behind that. And most people walked by it and never really paid knew much attention. Right. Never went over to it, read the inscription, anything else. Uh, yeah. I remember doing that years ago, though, and there's it two soldiers an older gentleman, if you look closely at the images, at the face, the, an older gentleman facing the north. I'll take that. I got it backwards. A young, a young boy facing the north like a boy going into the north, going to fight the Union. And then an older gentleman returning from the north. Looking bedraggled. With his head mm. held down in defeat. Yeah. Hmm. That's what that statue represents, and it and it represents sort of like it's a sad day because you know we have been defeated by you know the northern uh, re- uh, not rebels but the the northern aggressors aggressors they, they always seem northern to forget, aggression they always seem to forget the fact that the South fired first uh, yeah in uh, in Charleston I think uh, I think you're right they, they tend to forget that part. Um, <laughs> One, you know, what's interesting to me, uh, having lived in Tampa for a long time, is that I have actually met um, some historical figures. Uh, there are now historical figures. I mean, for example, Robert Saunders was somebody that I knew, mm-hmm. again, as a reporter. He was head of the uh, Equal Opportunity Office at Hillsborough County Government. But he was uh, an amazing figure because uh, he took over for Harry T. Moore after he was assassinated and became the head of the NAACP in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit about Harry Robert? T. Moore assassinated Harry T. in... Harry T. Moore was assassinated in... in not Tampa. Mims, no, Florida. Mims, Florida. Mims, Florida. Yeah. So near Orlando or something? Is that where North it is? of Orlando. Just a little bit northeast of Orlando. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit about Robert Saunders. I think that's... Uh, I, the Tampa person who took his place. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have been able to do that. Uh, what do you think? I'm not sure I would have taken that job either, <laughs> but that was Bob Saunders. Bob Saunders, who grew up in Tampa, uh, grew up in Robert City, actually. Most folk don't know where Robert City was, but that area over from Blake High School going uh, south toward uh, Cass Street, where Tampa Prep is, that whole area between those two schools, that that was Robert City, right on the uh, western banks of the Hillsborough River. That's where he grew up, uh, went away to college at Bethune-Cookman, got drafted into the Army, was doing World War II, was stationed at Tuskegee for a while. When he came out of the military, uh, he went to college, got his degree. Uh, he started at Bethune-Cookman College, but he got his degree at the uh, Detroit uh, Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. And then he went to law school in Detroit. But while he was in law school, that's when Harry T. Moore was assassinated. He and his wife and his daughter, his younger daughter, youngest daughter, on Christmas night, 1951. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Klan placed dynamite under their home out in a rural area in Mims, Florida, outside of Orlando. So the NAACP went without a Florida field director for about nine or ten months. 
Now, Harry had been relieved of his position with the NAACP just a month or two before he was killed. I don't think the Klan knew that. I don't think most people knew that. He was removed because many people in the NAACP felt he was too aggressive. Mm -hmm. They wanted him to stick to uh, trying to help uh, get evidence to take uh, people to court for violations of civil rights. Uh, maybe a little voter registration, but Harry T. Moore was an aggressive uh, advocate for civil rights. He not only registered people to vote, he challenged racist sheriffs and uh, court systems where he saw black people not being given justice to the point where the NAACP said, you're a little too radical, Harry. You've got to calm it down. Harry didn't calm down. He, he got even more determined to fight racism. So he was relieved of his position, but Bob Saunders found out after Harry's assassination that the NAACP was looking to replace him. And because Bob had come from Florida, mm -hmm. it made sense for them to hire him. And he worked here for uh, 16 years. And during that time, 14 years, rather. And during that time, there were, there were many advances made in registering people to vote, getting memberships for the NAACP to increase starting new chapters all over the state of Florida. Bob Saunders was a very brave and, and courageous man. And we do have a library named for him. We do. Correct. And a lot of people may not uh, be aware of why that library is named after him, but now you know the story. Uh, right. But one of the things that's so interesting to me is that uh, people uh, like yourself who grew up in Tampa experienced things that are now being taught in the history books. You experienced Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that was like growing up in Tampa in the 50s and 60s? Because, let's face it, the Civil War ended in uh, 1865, but African Americans did not get the civil rights they had fought for for a hundred years. A hundred years later, we were still in the midst of Jim Crow racism in Tampa, 1965. You couldn't, for example, go to Tampa Theater. Correct. It was segregated. Or the library. The or, or, or public libraries. Uh, tell us about growing up at that time. Well, we did have public libraries, but they were segregated. So the libraries that African Americans could go to were uh, on Central Avenue, the Harlem mm -hmm. Branch Library, very small library, and on uh, Main Street, the West Branch Library which was part of the North Boulevard Homes Public Housing Development and their rent office, as people used to call it. There was a little library there. So there were public libraries, but not to the extent that, you know, we have in the larger the, libraries the bigger, that whites could go to. Yes, you couldn't go to those. No. And it was 1965, exactly 100 years after, you know, liberation came nationwide to blacks, that the, the uh, main library downtown opened which is now known as the John Germany Library. It was just the main branch at that time. And when that library opened, that's when all of the public libraries desegregated, a hundred years after the end of the Civil War. So did you walk by that library thinking, all the time. I'd like to go in there? All the time. And, and here's the ironic thing, how I say, you know, God has a sense of humor. When I was a teenager, I remember... Uh, going to that library, uh, the, the main library at that time was on 7th Avenue, uh, the Free Library, uh, 7th Avenue in Franklin. Mm -hmm. The building is still there. That's a historic building. Hmm. That was the main library until John Germany was built on Ashley. 
And I remember as an 11th grader going to the free library on 7th Avenue. The first year it opened up to blacks. I had to do a book report. So I remember walking up those steps and there was a, a man lying down uh, in the bushes. He was either inebriated or he was asleep. I'm not sure. But he was a white man. He looked like he may have been homeless. I'm not sure. And I remember saying to myself, now all these years, he's been allowed to come here and sleep and do whatever because he's white. And I could never come here because I'm black. Mm-hmm. And I'm a student coming to get an education. And wouldn't you know it, that before I retired from the city of Tampa, my office was in that building. Oh, Is that really? Right? How interesting. The it's building still... that I couldn't go in yeah. until I was in 11th grade. That's, uh, God does have a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you, know, you talked about how long it took for Tampa to, be, to get to start integrating. Uh, there has been a lot of discussion, and there's now a historical marker at the Woolworths, uh, the old Woolworths mm-hmm. store downtown. There were uh, lunch counter sit-ins there organized by some high school students, I believe, right? Um, but that did not lead to... In other words, Tampa had a, an, a, an approach to dealing with this that was a little bit different from some of the other southern cities, where you mm-hmm. saw violence, you mm-hmm. saw fights at the lunch counters, you saw arrests. That didn't happen here. What was what was different about Tampa, do you think, Fred? We had Julian Lane as our mayor. Oh. If I had to name one thing that made a difference, it was Mayor Julian Lane and his attitude. You know, Julian Lane is the mayor who organized the mayor's biracial committee. Now, there had been efforts between white business people and black leaders of the community, especially in the faith community, to work together in harmony. There had been efforts in the 1950s, but it didn't really have any real teeth, any real power until Julian Lane, who was mayor for only one term, 1961, 1965, uh, he decided that he was going to make this the mayor's biracial committee, thereby putting his his stamp of authority on it. And so when someone from the mayor's biracial committee gives you a call, you take that call. You you listen. You you know, you want to work with the mayor. Nobody wants to be at odds with the mayor uh, unless it comes to segregating their place of business. And then, you know... So, but he said to his police department, as long as these young people, these black people are sitting at a lunch counter or entering an area and all they're asking is to be served or whatever, and they're not causing a disturbance, they should be protected. We shouldn't have any mob coming up to them, you know, starting fights or attacking them. So that's why it didn't happen in Tampa. Who knows what would have happened had we had a different mayor who had chosen to look the other way. And now uh, we have a, a fairly new, pretty nice uh, park on the west side of the river. I'm so happy. Julian Lane Park. I'm so happy that that park has the mayor's name. I, you know, I, years ago, uh, when it was not as spiffy as it is now, it's always been Julian Lane Riverfront Park, but people just call it Riverfront Park. People in the black community call it that. But I've always known that it was named for Mayor, Mayor Julian Lane, and I was so happy with the renovations. It retained that name. Uh, Mayor Buckhorn deserves credit for that, for giving credit where it was due, because Julian Lane in just his four years, and one of the reasons he was only mayor for one term is that there were a lot of people who were not happy with the way he handled those sit-ins that he was not more aggressive, that he did not allow those young people to either be attacked or arrested or whatever. I mean, there were a couple of arrests, but we didn't make the 6 o'clock news for violence in Tampa 
uh, when we went through desegregation, just like many other southern cities did. So Julian Lane was, if I had to single out one reason, he was the difference. So he paid a price politically then for that. Yes, he did. Now, Central Avenue, uh, uh, the street is still there, but the the community that existed for decades uh, no longer exists. Mm -hmm. I guess the Jackson House may be the last standing um, a building from, mm-hmm. from that. T- mm-hmm. Tell us about Central Avenue and how important that was uh, to the black community. Well, Central Avenue was at the heartbeat of African Americans in Tampa. When we could not go to the movie theaters downtown, we couldn't sit at the restaurants downtown, we couldn't stay in the white-owned hotels, we had Central Avenue, which had black-owned hotels, which had black restaurants, which had movie theaters where... You know, everybody there pretty much was African-American. There were some white-owned businesses on Central Avenue, but very few. I mean, for the most part, it was black-owned, black-operated. You didn't have to worry about sitting the wrong place or standing the wrong place. You could use all the restrooms. You didn't have to wonder about whether this was a white water fountain or a colored water fountain. All that nonsense went out the window when you were on Central. So... We were fortunate in Tampa in that we had a Central Avenue. Not every town had a Central Avenue, you know. It gave it gave uh, African Americans a place to where they could feel comfortable and, and right. enjoy themselves and 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 have business uh, conducted, that, right, from other black uh, owned businesses, right, right. Uh, Arthenia Joyner's uh, f- the the former state senator. She talks. A lot about uh, her dad owned, uh, mm-hmm. the, owned Cotton Club. the Cotton Club, a very popular mm-hmm. place. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF. Our guest is Fred Hearns, who is curator of Black History at the Tampa Bay History Center. And this is a pre-recorded show, so we're not taking calls and emails today, but we're very happy to have Fred here. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the History Center, because uh, you have done a lot of walking tours. Uh, Janet mentioned, I think, 300 walking tours mm-hmm. that you've done. But you're not doing that now. You are focused on uh, the Tampa Bay History Center as the African-American history curator. So what, uh, what does that involve, and what can we expect at the History Center coming up? Well, the Tampa Bay History Center is entering, uh, I think, a new chapter uh, in that uh, I'm serving as curator of black history, which means that I'm helping to add to the collection of the items that are there that are being interpreted. And that also uh, I'm involved in some tours. I don't do as nearly as many as I, as I did when I had my own business. Uh, by the way, many of those 300 tours were bus tours. Uh, you can cover a lot more territory on a bus, so mm-hmm. I, I love the bus tours. But uh, occasionally I will do Central Avenue West walking tours. That's a tour I developed uh, after the East Central Avenue walking tour because there's just too much to see in, in an hour and a half uh, in that area. That whole area was not just where Central Avenue was located. There were many black homes that were located there. Uh, the Longshoreman Association building is still there. Uh, association uh, local number 1402. The Kid Mason Recreation Center, a city recreation center, is still there. That's where the teenage dances were held during segregation. Uh, Oaklawn Cemetery isn't going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Uh, we know that... Uh, Fascinating uh, cemetery, by the way, for absolutely they've never been there. There's some... It, it's a collection. It's, it's quite a diverse collection 
of uh, souls buried there, right? I mean, it's absolutely former slaves, uh, former. Uh, I mean, there were Seminole Indians that were buried there. Of course, there were slave owners buried there. Absolutely, and Confederates are buried there. You can see the Confederate flags at certain times of the year, and mm -hmm. many people who fought for the Union are buried there. Uh, Don Vicente Martinez, Ebor, maybe the most famous resident of Oakland Cemetery. Many people aren't aware he's buried there in a tomb. And then on the on the other end, uh, you have the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church mm -hmm. building. Now, it's no longer a church. The, the church relocated to East Tampa, but it's a historic building, so it's always going to look like a church. And that's where President Bill Clinton, Jackie Robinson, uh, a lot of famous people, black people who were involved in the civil rights Martin movement. Luther King, Martin Luther King spoke there. Yeah. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, when he was the lead attorney for the NAACP. Let's hope we preserve that. Let's hope we preserve that better yeah. than we've preserved the Jackson House, which yeah. is just crumbling. Well, St. Paul is on the National Register of Historic Places. I mean, it's always going to look like a church. We're going to preserve it. So there, there are a few things there that are remaining. Then on Saturday, May 21st, this is what's upcoming because we've been talking about the past. Yes. So let's mm -hmm. talk about the future now. We're inviting everyone who can make it up to Brooksville. And if you've never been to our property that the Tampa Bay History Center manages, we invite you to come up to Brooksville to Chinsigat Hill Historic Site. Uh, if you Google, and everybody go Googles uh, things now. Let's spell that. Chinsigat. C-H-I-N-S-E-G-U-T. Chinsigat Hill. Right. Chinsigat <laughs> Hill, uh, which is an Inuit name. It's uh, taken from the Eskimos in Alaska, and it sort of mean, means where lost things are found. But it's a beautiful place. We're having Florida Emancipation Day celebration. Uh, it's a free event, Saturday, May 21st, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, we're going to have reenactors, entertainment, food. The Allen Temple AME Church Youth Choir is going to be uh, singing there. We have a great DJ, DJ Marvelous. Uh, and is there and a, a what's fee? The, what's the date again? A lot of food. It's Saturday, May 21st, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. And, and that's, that's at, in Brooksville, Chinsegat Hill Historic Site in Brooksville. And that marks the date when the uh, Emancipation Proclamation was first announced in Florida, right? Well, it's one day off. On May 20th, 1865, that's when the Florida when the Emancipation Proclamation was read in Florida. But we wanted to hold this on a Saturday Visions of Harmony will also be there. So that's mm. Saturday, May 21st, 11 a.m. to 5. And Chinsigat what is Visions Hill. of Harmony? Tell us, tell us about that. Uh, uh, sisters who've been singing since they were very, very young, and they've stayed together, and they're a beautiful uh, duo who sang inspirational songs. Awesome. And this is a time to celebrate for everybody, black, white, for everybody. We're celebrating the emancipation of formerly enslaved blacks in the state of Florida. And that is a great way to end this Wave Makers show. Thank you for being with us, Fred. We appreciate it very much. Thank you for